Well, let me be at least one of the first to say Merry Christmas to you. We are in December now, and we always look forward to this time of year and the celebration of Christmas. And we try to go a little bit deeper and to remember the reason why uh, Jesus came. I think the world sort of looks at December 25th as a magical day, and just the fact that it is Christmas Day has something powerful to it. And as believers, we understand it's not just about the date on the calendar, but it's the Savior who came, and we want to share His love. We want to share His mercy and grace, redemption. And I I think maybe the most important thing is to remember why He came. And in order to uh, really think about that, we have to not only see God in His holiness, we have to see us in our sinfulness and in our depravity, and we don't always like looking at that. So this is our Wednesday night service for um, December 2nd of 2020, that weird year that just won't go away, and uh, I'm a little bit afraid 2021 is going to kind of be a 2020 hangover year, uh, for lack of better terms. But uh, we're going to make the best of it. We're going to rejoice in the Lord. And we've been looking at Psalm 103. So I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 103. And by the way, thank you for taking time to watch this. And I understand that we have friends in Minnesota who watch this every week. And so we want to give a shout out to Dick and Judy Terwilliger and to the people who watch this Wednesday night service with them. God bless you, and um, we are so grateful to have you be a part of our service. Now, we're in um, the 15th verse of Psalm 103, and I want you to listen to the description that David gives when he talks about us and then when he talks about God. What a, what a contrast. I think sometimes we try to make God too much like us, and then other times we try to make ourselves too much like God, and there really is an extreme difference, which makes the Christmas season and understanding the incarnation, incarnation, Christ putting on flesh, uh, that much more special, spectacular, and amazing for us. Verse 15, Psalm 103. As for man... His days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. Verse 16. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. That's pretty long. On those who fear him... And his righteousness to his children's children. That's grandchildren. You have an effect on your family. The way that you think about God and the way that you live. Verse 18. To such as keep his covenant. And to those who remember his commandments to do them. Just remembering the commandments. Knowing the commandments. And judging other people by what they do or don't do according to the commandments of God is not really the issue. The real issue is, do we keep his commandments? And pushing it a little bit further, why do we keep 
the commandments of God. You know, there are some people who live moral lives and hate every moment of it. There are some people who do the basics of what God has commanded us to do and they resent it. And they're always, I had a person tell me one time um, here in our church, said, you do realize if I didn't tithe, I could have a boat. You know what I told him? Go buy your boat. If that's your reason for giving, then it's not going to bless you and it's not going to have any benefit. And that's the way it is with the commandments of God. There are some people who just kind of restrain themselves and hate every moment of it. And uh, the Bible says, I think it's in the book of James, don't quote me on that, that his commandments are not burdensome. Uh, when we get saved, God gives us his spirit and a new nature and with that is this inherent desire to please God. And so just like a small child, whenever you um, ask them to do something, I've got a, a little granddaughter who's learning how to talk, and she likes to repeat words. And so you'll, they call me Big G. And so whenever I say to her, you know, who is this? And she'll say, Big G, or you try to get her to copycat your words. She does it, and she does it most of the time with a smile. Why? Because it's in her nature to learn how to talk, to learn how to communicate. And she doesn't want to come up with her own language. She wants to learn our language and she wants to please us by the way that she communicates. We've all seen those kind of things. We've seen it when a little child learns to set up by themselves or when they learn to walk or when they learn to feed themselves or some of my older grandchildren are just now learning how to read and they see these sight words and they go oh I know that word and they'll start trying to read things out of a book or on a sign or something like that why it's in their nature to do that and so they want to be um, in and they want to be in favor and in good standing they enjoy that type of thing well as the children of God God has given us a new nature and we have this desire within us to please God now I wish it were a hundred percent I wish I were perfect I wish you were perfect but we're not and we battle those kind of things but at the very basic thing of all of uh, the very basic um, aspect of this is the new nature causes us to have a desire to please God that those who are lost, those who have never surrendered to the Lordship of Christ and trusted his death, burial, and resurrection as full payment for their sin is something they can't do. They don't have that desire to please God. Well, this is what David is talking about here. The contrast and the difference between man and and God and you can only come to one conclusion when you read these verses that whatever it is within us that causes us to want to please God well it has to come from God it's not going to come from us um, my son-in-law Isaac is on our staff here and he's actually he records these videos and gets them ready to put out and I appreciate that very much and uh, he has uh, two daughters, my granddaughters, and he's been teaching them the New City Catechism. And a catechism, if you're not familiar with it, is a series of questions and answers. And um, 
It'll ask different, uh, there are different catechisms, of course. Many of them are very good. And uh, it'll ask a question and then give an answer. And the answers are, are memorized. And it's good for children. They learn basic theology and doctrine through those catechisms. However, over the years, they used to be very popular. And in some denominations, they still are. Uh, over time, it became a thing to where that was a, a, a child's thing. And really, it shouldn't be a child's thing. It's something that even we as adults ought to do and we ought to go through and learn and make sure that we understand these things. And the very first question in the New City Catechism is, what is our only hope in life and death? And uh, I love hearing my little granddaughter's answer, and here's the answer, that we are not our own but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that really is the only hope that we have. Keith and Kristen Getty are uh, prolific songwriters, and they've kind of launched and um, contribute to modern hymns. You may know the song, In Christ Alone, and The Power of the Cross. They wrote those songs. But they have one that's based on this catechism. Here are the lyrics. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to him belong? Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? And of course the answer is nothing. And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ is our hope in life and death. So with that in mind, what is our hope? What is David's hope? Is it just simply that we try our hardest and our best to keep his commandments and resent every moment of it or resent other people because they don't seem to live up to what we're doing. I think about the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple, and the Pharisee says, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not as other men. And then he even points out, I'm not like this tax collector. But yet there seemed to be resentment in all of that. The tax collector's getting to do some things that the Pharisee wishes he could do. He's just scared to do them. The tax collector, on the other hand, he's the one that wouldn't even look up to heaven. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in that humility, Jesus said, two men went to the temple that day, but only one was justified. And by that, we mean made right with God or born again. Well, here's what we learn out of this psalm. Number one, don't try to find hope in the temporary. Don't try to find hope in the temporary and that's what most people try to do and they try to find hope in a preacher they try to find hope in a rabbi they try to find hope in a priest they try to find hope in a guru they try to find hope in an iman and they find themselves always being disappointed because in every case those are just mortal human beings some may be a little better than others, but they all fall short of the glory of God. Might I say it like this as a pastor? We, including myself, we all fall short of the glory of God. 
And so if you put your hope in what I think, what I say, or what I might even teach you or instruct you in or disciple you in, you're going to fall short because I fall short. Everything has to go back to God, and it has to go back to the eternal Word of God. And this is the downfall in so many religions and so many religious people, even some who are in the ranks of Christianity. They put their hope in rituals. They put their hope in performance. They put their hope in actions. They put their hope in people. Do I measure up to what the priest says that I am? Do I measure up to what the pastor says? Do I measure up? And we could go on and on and on. And yet David tells us here that whoever it is, me, you, anyone else, we're like grass. Grass is not particularly valuable. Well, I guess it could be if there's a drought and you have livestock in the summertime and you can find some pasture, that would be very valuable. But even then, it's not a commodity that people buy and sell and trade in. Hay maybe, but uh, not, not so much. It's not on par with gold or silver or anything like that, is it? In fact, David says, thinking about the kind of grass that they have in Israel, that it will sprout up. And then, what does it do? It withers. In fact, Israeli women in those days, and even in the days of Jesus, they would go out and they would get the dried grass, that dead grass that had been killed by the hot wind, and they would take it and they would use it to start fires in their little ovens so that they could bake bread. It wasn't anything that you grieved over. It wasn't anything that you memorialized. In fact, David says that when it's gone, you don't even remember where it is. And, um, you know, maybe in your lawn you might have a, a bare spot for a short period of time. But after new grass comes in and all of that, you don't really think that much about 10 years ago when grubs got that one part of your lawn and made a, a dead patch in the middle of summer. We don't do that because, after all, it's just grass. And David is saying that's kind of the way our life is. As important as we think we are, as valuable as we think we are, as influential as we think we are, all you have to do is, uh, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, who was the 14th president of the United States? I don't know either. And yet at the time... He was a powerful, powerful man, right? There are times when we go into a park or we go into a cemetery and there's a big statue of someone. What do we do most of the time? We have to go up and read the inscription to find out who they were. And yet they were important enough to be memorialized with a statue, but it doesn't take long for us to forget them. There are great preachers, pastors, of not too many decades ago who have now passed on and they're in heaven. And in their day, they were powerful preachers of the word, mighty men of God and of the scriptures, and nobody knows them today. This is what David is talking about here. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. He kind of comes and then goes. It's a short thing. The wind passes over it and it is gone and in its place. Uh, remembers it 
no more. This is, this is why we don't want to put our hope in man because anything that man does, I mean, it's kind of like fashions and different fads. They, they come and they go. And some things that we look back on a few decades ago, you pull out a, a picture of yourself and look at the way you were wearing your hair. Look at the clothes that you had on. And at the time you thought, you know, I'm really cool. I'm really with it, right? Now you look kind of funny. And uh, your kids or your grandkids don't even believe that it's you. And they make fun of it and they laugh a little bit. And, you know, frankly, you do too. But at the time, you were really into it. But everything changes. Things come and things go. And that's David's point. And that happens with religions, with cults. That happens with different theologies. And that's why we always have to go back to the Lord and to his eternal word. In James chapter 4, you're familiar with this. It says, um, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist. The King James Version says vapor. That appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, like you're gonna like you are gonna be the everlasting mist, right? All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now I wanna just say Life being a vapor, we quote that a lot because it does seem to be brief and um, I, I'm 60 years old. It does go by much faster than I ever anticipated. And as we get closer to the end, it goes faster and faster and faster. And many of you watching can say amen to that, unfortunately. But here's the thing that I want to say. Did you notice the context of what James is talking about? The people whose life is the vapor, the mist. You go out on a cold day and you can see your breath as it comes out. And uh, then it just disappears. It's kind of like that. Or when you do that on a mirror, it's there and then it's gone. Is, that, is he saying that about you? Is he saying that about me? Well, I hope not. I hope not. I think it's more than that because the context is those people who live for themselves apart from the will of God, they make their plans, they arrogantly boast about a day that they're not promised tomorrow and they take no regard for it, they take no regard for God, the will of God or eternity. So if you live like that, then your life is just a mist that comes and goes. However, if you live within the will of God, conscious of God, for the glory of God, in submission to God, and he is living through you, and your life is going to last for an eternity, and you're going to even be rewarded when you get to heaven at the judgment seat of Christ for everything you did for his glory, even if it was simply giving a cup of cold water 
in his name. All of that is going to matter and it's going to have weight and you're going to be far more than just a mist who is here and then gone. Because if you don't and you live for yourself, you may gain great wealth and power and prestige and influence and fame, but you'll be like the statue in 20 years. Nobody's going to know who you are. You're going to be the person that nobody really visits your grave much. You're going to be the person that they don't talk much about. You're going to be the person that they move on past with very little remembrance. And that's why we say, don't put your hope in what is temporary number two you need unending mercy from an eternal God because only an eternal God can give you unending mercy now I can give you mercy here on the earth but I can only do it as long as I either want to as long as I feel like it or as long as I live so if you do something to me that should be punished maybe a criminal offense, and I have the power somehow to say, no, judge, don't do that. I'm extending mercy to them. And uh, the judge says, okay, as long as you extend that mercy, I will give them that mercy. But what if I have a heart attack and in the next 30 seconds and die? And the judge goes, well, that's over now. And then all of a sudden, the mercy that you needed is gone. This is just kind of a funny way to illustrate. What if God gave us mercy, but he was not an eternal, everlasting God? You need the kind of mercy that never ends. You need the kind of mercy that only an eternal God can give. That's why verse 17 says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting, I mean, eternity that way, to everlasting, eternity that way. That means it has no beginning and it has no end. God has an ample supply of mercy for the worst sinner. The Apostle Paul, we think of him as a hero. But he said uh, in the book of 1 Timothy, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief or foremost of those sinners. And yet the mercy of God was enough for Paul. Whenever anyone says to me, I'm too bad to be saved, I say, don't flatter yourself. The chief of sinners has already been saved and there's room at the cross for you as well. And so the Bible tells us here that this eternal, everlasting God is the one who gives mercy, but notice it's on those who fear him, those who have submitted to him, those who trust him, those who love him, those who submit to him. The book of Lamentations, there are songs and hymns written out of these verses. Chapter 3, verse 23 says, talking about the mercies of God, they are new every morning, new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, and here's where it goes along with our theme, I will hope in him. Everything else will collapse. Everything else will crumble. Everything else. You know, if you were walking along and you have a propensity to fall and you feel yourself going down and you grab a handrail, maybe on a wall, but when you grab a hold of it as you're falling, it pulls out of the wall, then it didn't do you any good. 
But the mercy of God is not like something that can fail because it never does. It's always, always in ample supply. And we find our hope in him and in the, as Paul Tripp wrote in his, uh, the title of his book, New Morning Mercies. Every morning, those are new because he is a faithful God. And more than that, he's an eternal God with an eternal supply of mercy. So you need mercy from an eternal God. Number three, you need to overcome the temporary and embrace the eternal. Um, what do we mean by that? Look at the next phrase. And his righteousness, well, there's a lot we need to say about that, right? To children's children. Now, when I look at that, I'm seeing this eternal God. I'm seeing the eternality of what he has done for us and how we have this tendency in life to shun those things. Somebody said to me one time, you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Doesn't that sound smart? Doesn't that sound intellectual and philosophical? And some Christians have said, well, I don't really want to think about heaven. I want to be practical and I want to live now and do things now. Well, I do too. But the Bible says in the book of Colossians, we are to set our mind on things above where Christ is. That means we're supposed to be heavenly minded. In fact, the Bible, instead of saying, don't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. The Bible flips that over and says, be so heavenly minded that you can actually do some earthly good. That would be a lot more accurate, wouldn't it? And so we want to understand that in our lives and our tendency to collect things that are really just junk that we're going to leave behind, to collect things that are going to deteriorate, they're going to fall apart, to collect things that, oh, maybe some of them go up in value, but most of the stuff you have in your house and in your attic, it goes down in value. It's not worth nearly what you paid for it. You ever try to sell used furniture? And your kids aren't going to want a lot of those things. Your grandkids aren't even going to know what they are. They pick up that cassette recorder or that old uh, huge video camera that you have. And they go, what is this? They don't even know what a dial phone is, do they? And when you think about all of that, that's really kind of a metaphor for our life. We collect toys. We collect stuff. And we put our hope in those things even when we don't think we are. And we might even vehemently deny that we are. So why do we keep them? Why do we treasure them? Why do we hold on to them? And I do understand there are some sentimental things um, in uh, my grandmother's china closet and our china cabinet in our house. I have my mom's china. Okay, that's, that's a good memory and there's a lot of sentimentality in it. And uh, so I do understand there are some things like that. But most of what we have is not really like that, is it? And we have this tendency to grab a hold. Oh, if I could just keep things the same. If I could keep the same people around me and keep the same measure of health. If I could keep the same circumstances and all of this stuff. But life's not like that. It changes. And things tend to go downhill many times and they deteriorate. You put your hope in that, then it's like trying to grab onto a rope of sand. 
You, you can't hold on to it. And notice here that when David speaks of this, he talks about um, overcoming the temporary things and grabbing what's really important. Notice this. And his righteousness to children's children. Hey, if there's anything that I could leave behind to my grandchildren, I hope that I can leave behind something that might help them pay for their college. I hope I might be able to leave something behind that might matter to them, but I may not be able to. I don't know what the future holds. But there is one thing that above all, I hope that Big G can leave to all of his grandchildren. You know what that would be? Righteousness. Now we have a problem because I don't have any righteousness to give them. I don't have a storehouse of righteousness. In fact, if you were to evaluate my life and see it the way I see it, and to see it the way God sees it, you would look at that and go, okay, there's got to be some righteousness somewhere in here. Oh, here we go. There's a little dried up, you know, grape of righteousness in, in these leaves here. I mean, it'd be kind of hard to find. But the Bible says that we don't depend upon our own righteousness. In fact, it's right here in this verse. And His, capital H, who is that? God. And God's righteousness to children's children. God's righteousness. It's what theologians call an alien righteousness. It comes from somewhere else because my righteousness, you ever heard this? Is as filthy rags. My righteousness is stained with sin. My righteousness, even at the best that I am, it's tainted, it's stained, it's unacceptable to God. And so when God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live on earth, Jesus, as the God-man, lived a perfect life of righteousness. He kept all of the law of God, and he kept it perfectly. That means 100% of the law, 100% of the time. Isn't that wonderful? And then when he went to the cross, God the Father punished the innocent Son of God in my place and in the place of all who will trust him. And Jesus paid the price, and he, as the old hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And when we think about that, when he was raised from the dead, that was like God, well, on the cross, it's like if you go to the store and you hand the clerk some cash, that was Jesus' death on the cross. And the clerk hands you back the receipt and says, keep that receipt that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the receipt that we have, the guarantee that the sacrifice was accepted. And we received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. On the book today, for all of you who have been born again, when the books are opened, the righteousness, every righteous thing Jesus ever did is on your record book, and you have his Perfect righteousness. My righteousness is not perfect, and I would never claim for it to be perfect, but God's righteousness is, and God has given that righteousness to me, and that is something that I can, through my life, through my actions, through my preaching, through my teaching, through my influence, and through pointing to the Lord, that's something that can touch my children and my children's children and impact our family until Jesus comes. And that's what I pray for. 
That's why the Bible tells us in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. A thousand generations. That means God's serious about this. God is serious about impacting you and using you to impact your children and your children's children so that they can impact their children and their children's children on and on and on. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, famous verse. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So because of the death of Christ, we receive his righteousness, and through our life and through our witness, through our testimony, we impact others, especially in our family. And boy, does that ever need to happen. Number four, you need to find hope in God's assurance. It says in verse 18, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. You see, folks, that is not saying you get saved by keeping his commandments. It is saying that when you've received his righteousness and you've had a change of your life and you have a new nature and his spirit lives within you, you are compelled out of your love for Christ to please Christ and to obey him. What he is saying here is that God blesses those who keep his commandments because keeping the commandments is the result of trusting God and God's work in us, changing us and remaking us to where our motives and desires are different. In other words, keeping his commandments is evidence that I've trusted in him and in his grace. It's not my works that save me, but... Those who are saved by his grace alone, it results in good works. The good works are the result of salvation, not the cause, in other words. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean? I've got to make sure that I'm saved? Well, that, how, how do I know I'm not being fooled? Well, notice what Paul goes on to say. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Hey, this is all the work of God from start to finish. My salvation, your salvation is the work of God. And even us keeping the commandments of God and having assurance of salvation is also the work of God. He wants you to know that you are born again. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And what happens to those who are the children of God who have been born again? They love God and they love his commandments they want to please God, and so they form their lives around pleasing and honoring and testifying about God. 
That's why if you're born again, being a witness is not this horrible thing that you're sentenced to do. It's this wonderful thing that you love to do because you love to talk about the people that you love and your supreme love is the Lord Jesus Christ. So this Christmas season, think about this. It's not about being naughty or nice or on the naughty list or the good list or something. It's about this. Have you trusted in the perfect one who has eternal mercy, the one who has righteousness you could never attain on your own, and the one who wants you to be assured of salvation because you haven't trusted in temporary man and you're not living a temporary vapor life. You're living an eternal life of wonderful value and worth to the Lord because it is his life that is working in and through you. So bless the Lord, oh my soul, especially this Christmas because he's worthy of it and think about what he has done for you. And if you haven't trusted him, why don't you trust him today as Savior and Lord? God bless you, and uh, may you have a wonderful Christmas season. And thank you so much for watching this broadcast.